Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host and co-hostess, Patty Farrell and Dr. Nicola Flanagan, here to educate us on all things women's health throughout the next few episodes. There's been one episode of this podcast series recorded already, and I actually missed it through error of my own. Okay, so I do apologize to listeners. I told them all that you do not like them and you didn't want to be here. That was the primary reason. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to lie, but we're going to move on anyway, and hopefully we can reconcile those issues in our relationships. And we're going to discuss nutrition for women in particular. We're going to cover some of the basics, some of the things that absolutely apply to both sexes, but some of the unique things as well that are a bit more important for women to consider, given some of the changes that occur throughout the menstrual cycle, throughout the lifespan, and hopefully that will give you some useful take-home points to be a healthier, better performing, stronger, happier woman long-term. And just just on this, like all of us coach women, I think, and we all have female clients, um, and we've all coached women for years. So I don't want this episode, I want people listening to this episode going, oh, they're going to go into the really like deep intricacies of, you know, female physiology and, you know, nutrition. That's not what is actually helpful for individuals. It's actually not even what's helpful for coaches. Yeah, it's interesting. Like all three of us, we like this stuff. You know, you're going like, here's a textbook on, you know, whatever, female physiology, endocrinology, like I'll sit down and read that, you know. But what I want this episode or I want the you know the listeners to get from this episode is more practical advice you know i want them to come away from this and go okay i actually know how to interpret nutrition in my context if they are a woman or if they're a coach and they coach women they're like okay now i actually have a practical understanding because we are practitioners if you will um so it has to be practical so that's what we want to give in this episode so hopefully that's that's what comes across. And um, so, Nicola, where will we start with this? Well, Patty, <laughs> I think we'll start. I think we should start with just a general overview of the menstrual cycle and the fluctuations in kind of the main hormones in it. So, again, I think it's something that's pretty not well understood. And I think it will set this episode up ni- nicely as we kind of go through general nutrition recommendations that um, when we talk back to kind of some of the main hormones, estrogen and progesterone, that it'll make a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Take it away. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. So I suppose we know the menstrual cycle as a typical textbook 28 day cycle. So what we know is, is that this varies incredibly throughout woman to woman can be anywhere from, you know, 24, 35 days, um, give or take. But I suppose for this, let's just stick with a 28 day cycle just for simplicity. Um, And I want to talk about the two main hormones. So estrogen and progesterone, there are many other hormones involved, but again, for simplicity, we're just going to speak about those, those first two those main two um so day one to five is generally known as our period or menses and this happens um, when implantation hasn't occurred from the last cycle of the egg and sperm in the uterus so we have a breakdown of the lining of the womb this is generally when estrogen and progesterone are at their lowest Uh, women will generally be at their lowest weight. Um, And we call this, I suppose, the first half of the cycle, kind of day one to day kind of 13, we call this our follicular phase. Um, So during this phase, we'll generally have um, um, increased insulin sensitivity. We'll be able to utilize our carbs a lot better. 
Um, and so, like I said, day one to five is generally our men menstruation. And then moving on after menstruation there, one of our hormones, estrogen, um, which we consider an anabolic hormone as positive effect on skeletal muscle, that starts to rise. And then it reaches a surge, maybe around day 12 um, to day 13. So again, we have um, increased insulin sensitivity here um, and increased ability to utilize carbohydrates in the diet. Um, with this surge in estrogen, um, women might notice a little bit more water retention, a little bit more bloating during this time, particularly if there is, they have a diet high in salt or sodium. Um, and as well, other effects that estrogen can have on um, diet, on appetite, um, it can cause, I suppose, a suppression of one of our hunger hormones, ghrelin, um, which is produced in the stomach of the gastric mucosa. So it'll generally suppress um, ghrelin, which will make us, I suppose, feel fuller. We won't feel as hungry. Um, and then it can also make um, another kind of satiety hormone called CCK. It can increase its potency. So generally around this time, um, women might have, it might be kind of the lowest um appetite I suppose that they might have then they this surge in estrogen then will I suppose kick off ovulation and for an egg to be released from the ovary down the fallopian tubes and then into the uterus um, so gen women generally feel great around this time again um, there's a, a generally low appetite and then we're going into the second half of um, the, the menstrual cycle which is known as our luteal phase so estrogen drops off at the first half of this and then it rises during the second half and re reaches its secondary peak now this secondary peak isn't as high as the original peak in the first half um, but it is does still rise and with that there's a rise in progesterone and so, like we said, um, estrogen is an anabolic hormone, whereas progesterone is generally seen as more of a catabolic hormone and can antagonize um, estrogen. So with that, other effects that estrogen has on the body is that it can increase um, thermogenesis. So during the second half for the luteal phase, um, women generally might have an increase in their body temperature. Now, it might only be about um, like 0 0.3 of a degree Celsius. But this can have quite a large impact um, on our appetite, on our um, energy output. And so that's why sometimes women might feel kind of hungrier during this phase. We might be burning an extra kind of two, three hundred calories. And um, so that's when cravings might kick in. Um, also during the luteal phase, um, that carbohydrate, the, the insulin sensitivity um, will decrease. So um, glucose is um, kind of metabolized um, quicker through the stomach. There's also less GLP-1, which has an in impact on insulin sensitivity as well. So this can all, all contribute to those kind of carbohydrate, those kind of um, simple sugar cravings during this time. Um, and then we'll start notice things um, like mood swings, PMS symptoms during the second half of the luteal phase. And then provide at the end, provided implantation hasn't occurred, the, the, those two hormones, estrogen and progesterone, drop off and then the cycle repeats. And that is a very brief, well, long and brief overview of, of the menstrual cycle. Yeah, but it's really important to understand that there is these like a cacophony of hormones. They're up and down and all, what, all over the place, right? We just need to know that. We don't necessarily right now at least need to be like, oh, this is exactly how it maps. Now, what I am going to do in the, in the show notes on our website, I'm going to include a picture so you can visualize this. But you can find this online like you do a simple like search engine search and go you know menstrual cycle hormones and click images 
you'll see this, you know, and there's loads of nice diagrams, etc., online. So if you're looking at that and you're going, okay, so I can see hormones are going up and down, right? That does become really important for certain things we're going to talk about. Other things, it's not necessarily really important, but it gives you a lens through which to understand what is happening. You know, like you said, around that ovulation, you might be like, okay, why am I a little bit less hungry? You know, and there's all these evolutionary arguments for this stuff. And it's, it's actually quite interesting if you really go into it. It's like there's for that exactly, there's supposed to be like the evolutionary argument for that is that, you know, women experience less uh, hunger or yeah, yeah, less hunger at this time because it's supposed to make them go out and search for a mate, you know, and stuff like that. You're like, okay, that's actually quite interesting. And then there's other things that you might notice about your own behavior as well. Like there's all the, there's actually loads of studies about like uh, how women's hips move during different uh, stages of their cycle. And like during ovulation, like they have a more uh, like sexy quote unquote, I'm putting that in air quotes, like strut, you know? And it's like, there's all these different things that, if you've never looked at this stuff, you've never even you know thought a little bit deeper about this stuff, you might be like, why do I behave a certain way? Or why do I feel a certain way? Or why do people treat me a certain way? Because like stuff like that, like humans are really good at noticing things, you know? So people will be like, okay, like they might not know what's going on, but they're like, Jesus, actually this person over here, like she's, she's looking great today. She's, you know, she's looking sexy, <laughs> you know? And it's like, okay, if you've never noticed that about yourself and you've never tried to correlate this stuff, you could be like, what, what's actually going on? Because again, we notice these patterns. We don't necessarily know what's going on. But when you look at this stuff, when you actually dig a little bit deeper, you can go, okay, Jesus, there's actually a lot more to this than I you know, initially thought. Now, obviously today we're going to talk about it in regards to nutrition, because that is what people, you know, that's what we're here for today. Right. And, um, but before we actually get onto the nutrition thing, I would like to just touch on and, and you did touch on it a bit and um, people's weight fluctuating throughout this, because I know a lot of people listening to this, they're looking at, Oh, how do I manage my nutrition? Because I want to get some fat loss, you know? And if we're doing that, you know, a lot of people to track their fat loss, they're going to step on the scales. They're going to step on the scales and go, you know, is my body changing? You know? So how do, how does our, our weight generally change throughout this cycle? Yeah, so I suppose one thing even just kind of backpedaling there is that these are all very general things with the menstrual cycle and there is so much um, variation between women. So I was saying there at the start that the kind of day one to five or the period might be the time where you have your lowest weight. And again, that changes. So some women might feel really bloated on their period. So this is like a, a general um, overview that that many women, this might be their lowest weight. And that's kind of from the days kind of, you know, one to five. And then so with the rides in estrogen, um, we might see women kind of holding a little bit more weight, being a little bit more bloated. That's um, the second half of the follicular phase. Um, and then again when those pms symptoms come in so that's the second half of the luteal phase and we have the rise in estrogen and progesterone you'll generally see an increase that'll be when women at their highest weight um, during that time and so that's just something that's really interesting to track throughout the cycle and i know we spoke in the last episode that many women have never tracked their period um so it, it's important to be aware of the these fluctuations as well because if you're someone who's who's dieting um and you're you're following everything to a t and um, it can be really disheartening during that time when you're like why am i losing weight kind of why is this happening so i suppose it's it's more to um 
be a conscious observer of these changes and know kind of why they're happening um, and not getting kind of too distracted or too kind of nailed down to to the the, 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 the weight on the scale. Yeah, like we always try to, well, we always generally advocate for that comparing like week to like week, you know? So it's if you're measuring week one of your cycle, like you don't compare that to week four of your cycle, you know? Because they're going to be two different things because your hormones are different at these different stages, right? So we're like compare week one to week one. You know, and um, now that's obviously easier said than done, because, you know, if you're basically having to wait four weeks to see if the intervention you've done is actually working, like, first of all, that can that's you know, a little bit disheartening where you're kind of like, OK, I'm stepping on the scales. It's actually going up. Am I, am I doing something wrong? You know, it's very hard to stay on track with that stuff to then hopefully see a payoff, you know, on like week to like week. But then also, obviously, like you said, like there's so much difference between women and like we said in the first episode you kind of have to just be your own experiment you have to go okay well let's actually just look at trends for me how do i respond if i step on the scales across my entire cycle how does that look what's changing there now again you want to get multiple cycles here because if you do it just over one month you know you had that pizza on the weekend one time and your weight was up and you had a bit extra sodium like it's not going to be perfect correlation to the diet and what's going on And, and your cycle obviously but we want to get some of that data so you know in future oh like i've had a i've had a client previously that it was about five kilos in the difference between the start of her cycle and the end of her cycle and if we're trying to track you know fat loss or something and there's a five kilo variance here just normally like she could literally eat the exact same calories like militant i'm going to eat the exact same food almost you know there's still this huge variance and if you're looking at that and you're going jesus am I doing something wrong? Cause there's a five kilo jump between week one and week four. You know, you can make huge changes to the diet thinking that, Oh, I need to make these changes because I'm not moving in the right direction. You know, like if someone saw a five kilo jump over a month and they're supposed to be on a, whatever, a 500 calorie deficit, they're going, Oh geez, I must be in a surplus. So I'm going to have to, you know, drop off 750 calories here just to, you know, even things out. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're actually in this huge deficit. They're hungry all the time. They feel like crap. And then other things, which we'll talk about in future episodes, like uh, amenorrhea might occur and you know different things like that. So you have to be aware of this stuff. And, you know, you see online and we, we kind of touched on this in the first episode. You see online a lot of just crap put out there about, you know, how women should exercise, how women should, you know, train and, you know, look at their diet, et cetera. But this is one of the things that, you know, both the average woman and the average coach get wrong because, you know, if you're just the average coach and you see someone and you're like, right, you need to track your diet. You need to eat these calories, these macros. This is what we're going to do. And you see your client and they're gaining weight. You're going, oh, well, this client's obviously, you know, they're fucking it up. They're not doing it right. Or, you know, maybe I just set their calories wrong. You know, we estimated incorrectly. I'm just going to drop calories. And if you don't know this basic overview, you might think, oh, that's just, that's generally a good idea to do. When in reality, their physiology is just saying, okay, well, we're actually just going to fluctuate our weight throughout the cycle. It's going to kind of trend upwards and that's just normal for them, you know? So we have to be aware of this stuff. We have to actually take it into account when we are making dietary changes, when we are setting the diet up, et cetera, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really good point is, is not 
to be too reactive towards that weight change, particularly in the second half of the cycle. Um, because two things, your, your weight might be going up, but like we said, you also must, might be burning more calories. So if you're if you're being really reactive and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm up weight, you're already in a 500 calorie deficit. And maybe because you're in the second half of your cycle, it might actually make that a 700 calorie deficit. Um, you know, your hunger hormones are, are all over the place and it can just, I suppose, lead to a lot of disover, disordered eating and I suppose overeating um, in the short and long term. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to, again, the thing that we discussed in the first episode, which is you need to be that experiment of yourself. You just need to be like, okay, what's going on? But you also need to learn to auto-regulate because first of all, this stuff is not, like we said in this episode as well, it's not the same woman to woman you know these are just general overview things these are just generalities but even in yourself you might notice okay well one cycle is like this the next cycle is not like that you know as we said before like your cycle could be yet the quote-unquote perfect 28 days but you could have a variance you know some women are literally like clockwork some women are like oh well i'm plus or minus five days either side seven days either side whatever you know there's there's a bit of variance going on there so you have to just be able to listen to your body be able to listen to what's actually occurring and again the only way you're going to be able to listen to these signals correctly is if you have an idea of what's actually going on with your cycle like what 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 that actually looks like and um, but anyway before we get too dug into this stuff um let's just move on to the actual nutritional stuff so where do we start with this we'll let gary jump in here because you know he's he's sitting over there nice and quiet yeah so naturally a lot, the vast majority, I would say, of the nutrition principles that are going to apply to women are going to apply to men. Okay, it's that those basics are not going to change. Okay, so the same underlying principles of the importance of calories, the importance of fruits and vegetables, the importance of protein, etc., are all still going to stand. There are certainly some variations in how these principles apply over time. For example, some of the things we might go through would be. If we're going to be really aggressive with a calorie deficit, men from a hormonal and endocrine side of things are going to be a bit more resilient potentially to that uh, harsh deficit, whereas a woman might end up uh, with amenorrhea, secondary amenorrhea, or potentially increasing risk of that occurring. So that's something that we need to keep in mind. That's not to say that men can't also experience you know, erectile dysfunction, reduced sex drive, reduced fertility as a result of these deficits but it just tends to be a little bit more resilient. So it can occur, but from what I know and what I've experienced, it tends to generally require a much harsher deficit for longer periods of time. Along with that, you know, we might make recommendations for certain foods um, that are gonna be generally healthy for, for everyone, but for a woman during pregnancy, she might be advised differently to avoid certain foods, for example. Um, so these, there are certainly these specific instances, instances that change our recommendations, but the vast majority are going to apply um, across the board for both. Okay. Now, one of the things that we have just touched on, of course, is the menstrual cycle. And there are various strategies related to how one might set up their nutrition in relation to that cycle, um, the merits of which I'm sure we'll discuss. But again, it, it comes back to this point that we will continue to reiterate that there is no one size fits all approach here. You know, I've had some female clients who had great success with, you know, increasing their calories kind of prophylactically leading up to their period. And that's helped them keep cravings at bay, satisfy some of them, those cravings even, and just manage their energy levels a little bit better. Other women 
it's never been an issue. They just continue, you know, throughout their cycle, standard, steady calories, and they don't need to change anything. And I think from my experience, observing people who get into the weeds on this, when they learn about the menstrual cycle at first, they learn about the physiological changes, their initial instinct is to change everything. You know, that's, that's what sounds really attractive. It sounds really sexy. It sounds really scientific that if they're changing carbohydrate uh, portions at this stage of the cycle, calories at this stage of the cycle, fats at this stage of the cycle, that it's going to make a significant difference. But often what it does is just add a lot of extra layers of complexity to, to something that's already very dynamic. So I would encourage women generally to try to stick to the basic principles as much as you possibly can and only go for those more maybe advanced and specific strategies in instances where you feel like, oh, this is a specific problem that requires a specific solution. Because otherwise, like for anyone, you're just making it far more complex than it needs to be. 100%. So Nicola, where do we start? Gary just gave us this nice little framework of, you know, the basics are still the basics. So we still do that stuff, you know, needs to be, the diet needs to be calorie appropriate. You know, we generally want to eat some fruits and veg. They seem to be you know, good for most diets. And <laughs> um, we want to have sufficient protein, you know, probably again, like saturated fat. This is one of those things as well. And I'm sure we'll touch on it later in some other episodes. And um, like women do still have heart disease risk, even though people are like, oh, this is a traditional male, you know, uh, issue. Like, you know, we still want to look after our saturated fat intake. We still want to keep, you know, salt below that kind of whatever, three to five grams, depending on your size, et cetera. Um, so all of those things, the things that we talk about a million times on this, on this podcast, they all still hold true. But where do we start with this kind of framework? Someone's coming to this, they listen to this maybe for the first time, you know, well, maybe that doesn't make sense, but they're listening to this. They have this basic understanding of nutrition, but they're looking to dial in their nutrition or perhaps dial in the nutrition of one of their clients or something. And they're like, oh, like, I'm not really sure what framework to use. What are we starting with? Absolutely. So I suppose just to echo one of the points that Gary said there, and I know we spoke about it a little bit in the last episode as well, but um, just because someone's a woman um, doesn't mean you need to, to change everything. You know, it's not good coaching practice to just change everything based on that. So we will be touching on, I suppose, some women specific points during this. But again, it's just it's just not a hard and fast rule. So I suppose the like one way that I like to lay this out where to start with clients and um, particularly women. So I was talking about um, Eric Helms and his nutrition period. Uh, pyramid sorry my phone's hopping here um and generally at the base of of, of most nutritional period um, pyramids I keep saying periods because all this woman talk um but you have energy balances is king down down the bottom of it but for women another layer to kind of add on to this and um, what I think is more kind of mindful eating and appetite awareness and why this is is because I feel like a lot of clients come to me and um they 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 know about maybe a little bit about energy balance they know what's important but there's a lot of I suppose over the years kind of cultural influences um that have told them you know kind of um what to eat um how much to eat um and they've sometimes a lot of really disordered relationships with food um so one thing that I'd like to start with is 
instead of kind of trying to move, I suppose, from external food rules of, you know, eating less and only eating kind of when you're starving um, and eating in small amounts to more kind of um, internal um, principles um, and self-regulation. So that's like asking someone, you know, like, you know, am I physically hungry? Um, you know, are you eating with distractions? What's your typical day of food, you know, trying to achieve? Um, you know, are you, you know, staving off food for, you know, hours and hours of the day and then you get home from work and you're, you know, physically starving. Um, so just, I suppose, bringing the attention more back to self and how we're eating and our relationship with food and kind of having that as, as our base um, before kind of starting with, you know, energy balance and calories, because you can give someone their calories, you can give someone their macros, but if they have a terrible relationship with food, it, it doesn't really matter. It, it's it's going to be kind of the default to fall back into, you know, binge eating um, and these kind of other um, unhealth, unhelpful um, habits. Yeah, like we always talk about these like three tiers um, that we use with coach or coaching with clients. You know, we're like, OK, we have this, you know, this method, we'll call it of habit based change. We can focus on habits. We can focus on, you know, we're just going to do these small habits. We're going to change these habits. And that's going to lead us in the direction that we want, right? And then we also have this kind of portion control method. This is you know, tier two, where it's like, okay, we're actually just going to focus on the actual portions, what your actual meals look like, what the plate looks like, you know, and this is what generally, you know, something like, a, you know, my plate in, in the US or like the food pyramid, stuff like that. It's just portion control. So some sort of portion control method. And then our tier three is, you know, we're actually just going to track calories and macros. And, you know, someone's going to fall somewhere on that spectrum. You know, we're still going to use habit change. You're still we're going to focus on habits if we're doing tier three we're still going to focus on portion control if we're doing tier one so it's a it's a spectrum across all of that but like you're saying here the fundamental the foundations of all of that is actually being able to understand yourself being able to understand okay am i actually hungry here am i full like you have to you need to listen to those signals and we have like different tools in like the coaches corner and stuff about like uh appetite awareness and different things like that just being like okay well how do you feel before me let's rate this are you absolutely ravenous are you you know if you're good you're like oh, i could definitely eat but it's not something that you know i need to i need to eat right now like i'm absolutely starving so we do the little you know, tools like that to really dial this stuff in but regardless of what tools you use you really need to be aware of you know, again it's called mindfulness eating but you basically just need to be mindful when you're eating, but also before you're eating, and then after you're eating. Gary, Gary's over there, bottles. <laughs> like a madman. Thanks, <laughs> um, anyone walks fast. Continue. <laughs> um, so we need to be uh, mindful as a base, because regardless of what methods, what tools you use in terms of, it could be some sort of habit-based change, portion control, calories, macros, whatever, whatever, even if it's you know, keto, whatever dietary patterns you use, you still need to build that awareness because if you don't build that awareness, like you're not going to actually create a diet that you're going to see yourself being able to do long-term, you know? And so mindfulness eating and appetite awareness is absolutely key. And for all of the uh, viewers of the podcast, we listened on YouTube, we now have uh, a fourth member, the triage mascot. Puddles. Say hi, Puddles. Yeah, we'll talk about canine nutrition recommendations in another episode, but for now, let's continue. That could, be its, that could be its own series, Gary. We'll do a whole yeah. series. On it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Nicola, moving on. Or if you want to touch more on that mindful eating. 
No, no, that's all good. Yeah. So the, I suppose the next kind of layer that, that we were saying and you kind of alluded to there. So you're sort of thinking about kind of energy balance, you know, how much we eat. So whether that's kind of portion control, whether that's tracking. Um, so, you know, all of those are so important. I do recommend at some stage that that someone, um, you know, learns how to track their calories not even from a weight perspective but more as an educational tool just to really understand this was the composition of the food that's on their plate not just kind of the size of it on their plate but to know um kind of what kind of protein they're hitting what kind of carbs they're hitting what kind of calories they're hitting um so yeah the next thing would be energy balance so how is that affected so our, our energy intake um so whether that's the composition of food um you know the energy that's stored i suppose in you know carbs proteins fats um how well our body can you know digest absorb these food if there's any um you know like inflammatory bowel disease whether there's crohn's that sort of thing then think about like our gut motility microbiome etc um and then energy output then so i suppose generally often we think about this in terms of you know exercise um, and we kind of forget about everything else that's involved like our, our resting um metabolic rate how, how that's affected so like our, our age um, our body size kind of growth development and then our hormones so we spoke about the luteal phase and the menstrual cycle already and progesterone and how that can actually raise our, our metabolic rate and um, we also have like our thyroid hormones they can increase it um, epinephrine that sort of thing um, we have our activity then so whether that's kind of our non-exercise activity and um, whether that's our purposeful activity so going out and you know to the gym running whatever it is um, and then finally then so I suppose like excretion so that's like excreting metabolic wastes and how fiber has its impact on that um, so fiber is not as easily absorbed in the body um, and so the body will extract less energy from it and I suppose one thing that I wanted to kind of touch on with that is that's role um, in plant-based diets and so energy availability in women um, so one thing that that can be seen I suppose particularly with um, women who are plant-based maybe that want to go into an energy surplus but just can't really kind of you know get get to that point and one thing that can be looked at is is the role of fiber here um, and so not just an energy surplus, but if someone's not meeting their energy requirements, you know, is is their diet is their diet. And for someone else um, having, you know, a surplus of fiber is a good thing. But if someone is like in uh, like a female um, who's not eat, eating their energy requirements and they're plant based, it could be um, down to that. And again, like we we're talking about amenorrhea, um, menstrual cycle irregularity, irregularities, et cetera. So it can have an impact on all that. Again, it's not it's not a dominant thing, but it's it's not exactly irrelevant either. Yeah, like it's, it's just something that we have to be aware of. But like you're saying here, this next base, we've got this mindful eating, we've got this like again base of that actually listening to your body, which you know it's it's actually surprising how hard of a sell that is. You know, where it's like okay, you actually have to listen to your body. People are like, oh no, I could I could never do that. You know, and in fairness, a lot of people do struggle with this because they have done this next step, this energy balance you know, and how much we eat, they've done this so, we'll call it obtusely for so many years. Like if you've been in this chronic dieting stage for the last 20 years on and off, like I always call it the, the health and fitness merry-go-round, you know, and you're literally, oh, I'm in a calorie deficit. I'm in a calorie deficit. And then every time you step off the, the merry-go-round, you're like, all right, I have to eat all the food because the way you set the diet up was really like poor. Again, usually through lack of knowledge, and which is not your fault. It's the health and fitness industry's fault. Um, 
But then all of a sudden you step off this and you're ravenously hungry, you know? So it's very easy to see how people don't trust themselves listening to their body because when they listen to their body, you know, they're like, well, I just eat all the food. But it's because this is also, you know, temporal, it's time dependent. What have you done beforehand? So we do need to set this energy balance intake and output up correctly so that we can actually listen to our body. So these first two, like, you know, foundations of the pyramid they are intrinsically linked all of the, the the part of the pyramid is intrinsically linked like we need to get it all right or dialed in it doesn't need to be perfect but we need to have a look at all of the different stages so that we can actually set this stuff up correctly so that we're not having problems down the down the road like i always think it's funny like dentists are probably one of the only professions that will literally tell you how to never see them again you know they're like okay brush your teeth do this floss your teeth do all this stuff You'll never need to see me again. You know, like that's, that's kind of their goal. Like they literally tell you what to do to never see them again. Right. And unfortunately the health and fitness world doesn't really do that, but that's kind of what we want to give from this episode. Well, this whole series and all the education in, if I could even speak, all the education stuff we put out on social media, et cetera. I want to give you the tools so that you never need to get coaching that you never need to talk to one of us about, Oh, how do I do this stuff for myself? I want to get emails from people when they're 70 years old going, Jesus, I remember I followed you when I was in my early 20s. You really helped me set this stuff up. I've had a fantastic life. I've really been able to, you know, enjoy this stuff and get it all dialed in because of that information. Like, that's what I want from the, all of this stuff, you know? So that's what we want people to get from this. And the only way you're going to get that is if you pay a little bit of attention to, okay, here's my cycle. Okay, I'm going to listen to my body. I'm going to set the energy balance up. I'm going to, you know, look into what, the, what is required for that. But what happens next? What's what's the next step after or what's the next rung of the pyramid, so to speak? Yeah, well, even before that, I suppose a good, a good um, point to make as well, I suppose, is the metabolic differences in sex as well. And I think we, we spoke before about, you know, when you go to a restaurant and you're with your girlfriend, whoever, and you're you both have, I suppose, the same size of a meal. And this is often where people run into problems in relationships. Where women start to like pile on weight um, when they're eating the exact same foods as their boyfriends who um, generally have a higher metabolic rate so if you were to take a man and a woman of the same size um, man will generally have maybe a five to ten percent higher metabolic rate and I suppose that comes down to um, a number of things like lean muscle mass um, you know the effects of testosterone will generally increase um, your, your metabolic rate as well and they'll have a slightly higher body temperature um, so it, I suppose that that's a good thing to, to note as well is that we do have different energy requirements um, and there's lots of different tools and calculators that you can find online um, for this. But I suppose it's just if you are dieting with someone at home, <laughs> just make sure you're not you're not on the same calories because um, it is it is um, so different um, from from person to person um, and as well things like you know trying to do the same nutritional interventions like intermittent fasting um you were saying earlier you know um kind of i suppose women's bodies is from like evolution i suppose we more kind of aggressively defend homeostasis um, and that's why um, we have um, effects like amenorrhea, um, why we have, you know, um, decrease in bone mineral densities, why our hormones get destructed again, because it's just trying to protect that reproductive um, function. Um, so, yeah, definitely there is there is a difference in sex here just to just to 
note that. Yeah, and it's actually really important as well because it first of all shows that women are by far and away definitely the more important sex. <laughs> because we we knew that already. <laughs> but like in fairness, though, for the survival of the human race, like women are far far more important. Not just because you can actually like carry the child, but if you think about it, like logically, like it makes more sense if you have a starvation, ice age, whatever situation going on, it makes more sense for more women to survive than men because one man can get you know millions of women pregnant if you know then we need to repopulate the human race. You now the genetic diversity wouldn't be great. But you get the idea, right? And um, whereas if there's a million men and one woman, like you can still only have one child a year, you know. So it's like that's not going to reproduce the entire human race. So women are far more important, and this is why you see different things like you're noting there, where women will reduce their metabolic rate just like spontaneously, like in re- in reaction to a calorie deficit, because all that matters is that you survive. You know, your body is a survival machine. Whereas me and Gary over here two idiots will literally fidget ourselves to death. You know, we'll be in fucking a concentration camp and I'll be moving my hands and going fucking walk all this. Literally, Gary will literally be uh, at a million degrees at night, pumping out sweat, losing all of his energy, all the heat to the environment. Whereas you'll be over there going, oh, wow, I've actually just, you know, we've got a concentration camp set in here. So I'm going to, you know, reduce my metabolic rate. Okay, yeah, you feel cold and stuff, which is not great, you know, but you survive then. You know, uh, whereas myself and Gary, we literally three months into the concentration camp are both dead. Um, so women are more important. But regardless of that, um, or just moving on from that, there are also other things. And this is obviously, again, coming back to how women have experienced stuff you know, traditionally and even to this day. Um, like when you're talking about you go to a, a, a restaurant with your partner or whatever and they're like oh the guy gets a portion and the woman gets a portion and they're the exact same portion size like as we discussed in the last episode i love that because my girlfriend's about half the size of me so i have her plate when she's finished which is you know key um but you also see this in how women i to say react to the diet because women again traditionally have been left in charge of rearing the kids you know it's like you have to raise these kids so if you're making food for the kids they're like oh you need to eat at this time you need to eat at this time the kid doesn't eat something they eat half their plate you're like oh actually yeah, i'll have a bite of that like you end up kind of snacking throughout the day as you feed the children and then also you know if you're if you're in charge of also making the dinner you're kind of like okay well i have to make the dinner for everyone i can't just get, feed them this like you know slimming world diet or whatever it is that i've been on because i have to look after everyone else as well so it makes it harder from the perspective of there's more food around you because you're constantly interacting with food because you are in charge of, you know, feeding the people in the household. But then also it's harder for you because you can't just think of yourself. You can't just think of yourself as an individual. You have to be like, okay, well, I want to eat a little bit less or I want to modify my diet. I want to look after this energy balance stuff that these guys are talking about, but I have to look after the family as well. I can't just do this on my own, take it as an individual endeavor. I have to make sure that whatever I'm doing is still acceptable for the rest of the family. You know, like you don't want to be the one that's like, oh, I cooked everyone else's, you know, I don't know, tasty lasagna or whatever. And I'm having a, a little salad over here, you know, like it, it, it doesn't uh, encourage that kind of group or family cohesion, you know? So there are, again, traditionally, especially, but it's still to this day, like that's generally the, the way it goes. Although like in my household, I always say like my dad literally cooked all the all food. My mom's a terrible cook. So look, it doesn't happen in every single household. And Gary will, Gary will tell you like my household is literally just all guys. So you'd think like, 
you know, traditional male roles, traditional female roles or whatever, but I literally could not be further from the truth. Um, but, you know, so it does happen like that for a lot of women, because again, traditionally you've been left up to look after the kids, look after the food. That's your role, you know, clean the house, whatever. Um, that's the role. And unfortunately that actually makes it much harder to diet successfully. Um, so I don't know if you want to touch on anything there. Yeah, definitely. And, and I suppose kind of hearing that and even hearing that, um, that, you know, oh, our, that our hormones are going to be messed around. Like, what do we actually do about this? You know, I, I suppose like hearing that, oh, your body's going to shut down and your hormones are going to switch off can, I suppose, feel feel quite oppressive. So like, what, what are we supposed to do except for not diet? But there's actually a lot of different nutritional interventions that we can implement. And um, one of those other things that we can implement too, this may or may not even affect you. There's a lot of women who diet really successfully and don't have any of these issues. There are just some women that are that are more susceptible to these kind of things and and it's a mixture of um you know energy availability it's a mixture of psychological stress physical stress it's it's multifactorial um so there's a mixture of that and then we were saying that you know you can implement different nutritional strategies so whether that's increasing calories for the second half of the cycle whether it's um you know periodic refeeding throughout a week maybe you want to have um lower calories for kind of five days higher calories for two days of the week and again just trying to i suppose kind of you know balance out um those kind of you know hunger hormones um to i suppose reduce the impact of you know chronic dieting um, and again that that'll be completely dependent on the individual um, and like we were saying you know changing and, and and doing these things from the get-go with women just because they're a women isn't isn't good coaching practice so it'll be individual dependent but yeah, yeah, it's most yeah. shorter time horizons with women so i'd be like all right for a guy i'm like oh cool we're gonna bang out this 16 week diet phase we're gonna go yeah that's that's grand because i know for them you know they're gonna be they're gonna be grand they might notice some like changes in libido or libido or however you say that word you might be like okay yeah i'm a little bit less interested by week 15 or something you know whereas for women i'm gonna go right eight weeks that's that's our dieting phase then we're gonna reassess we're gonna go maybe a week at maintenance you know i might even go four weeks i might be like right we're gonna do four weeks then the issue with that is again as we discussed earlier like you want to compare like week to like week so if you're only doing four weeks it can be quite hard to go have we actually made progress are we exactly where we want to be so generally i like that kind of six to eight week mark and go right we reassess after that we're doing a week at maintenance you know or you're doing some protocols like you're saying where throughout the week you're you know uh, sprinkling in some periodic higher calorie days whether this you know fixes any of the hormonal stuff at least psychologically it's a lot easier to go okay i only have to you know diet a little bit harder these two days and then i'm gonna have a refeed two days refeed whatever it is you know and even if the refeed only goes back up to maintenance yeah the diet is prolonged a little bit you know longer because you know you're not in as large of a deficit over across the week but at least you're actually able to succeed on the diet then because you're not absolutely starving you're not noticing all these huge metabolic changes etc so there are different protocols and i'm sure we'll get into them especially when we talk about um like amenorrhea like a lot of the things that we talk about in that uh, that kind of red s if you will like a lot of the solutions to that carry over to just the general general population and um, so i don't know if you have anything else to say on energy balance if not or gary if you want to chime in we can move on to that kind of food quality and nutrient density i'm happy to move on there <laughs> so 
Gone ahead, Nicola. You can go on to this food quality. Yeah. So I suppose again, that this is this is more of a general point for both, you know, men and women. So obviously food quality is you know important for optimal health and body composition um, and then nutrient density is important then if, whether you're looking for um, weight gain weight loss so those are other really important considerations I suppose when 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 planning a diet so not not, not too much to say on that thankfully yeah it's a it's just a foundational part of the pyramid Let's move on. Mac- part of the pyramid, exactly. Macronutrients. Look, we've talked about food quality so many times on the yeah, yeah. <laughs> So We don't need to spend time on it every single time we discuss it. So right. macros. Yeah, definitely. So, ta- so I was talking about our proteins, fats and carbs. So specific to women, protein, I mean, generally it's, is with clients that are starting with me, nearly always is quite low. Um, and I think why that is I suppose maybe it's mapping back to even back to sport in school that there's I suppose men are more involved with sport than more involved with gym earlier on so they're more thinking about protein more thinking about protein in the diet whereas I don't think women are as much if they're not already involved with sport and the gym from from a younger age um, and then when they're looking to to guys was no more about body composition that's when it starts um you know being a factor um so what i'll find with clients starting they'll be they'll have their breakfast it'll be kind of little to no protein lunch there may or may not be you know um, a protein serving and then dinner is generally where they'll be getting the, the majority of their protein and again at the end of the day like some clients starting with me might have only had 40 grams of protein throughout the day um general recommendations for the general population i suppose to to prevent deficiency in protein it's like 0.8 grams per per kilo um which is which is quite low and again i suppose that the key point there is to prevent deficiency um but that isn't i suppose sufficient for you know optimal health um body composition um so that that is, um, you know, one thing that I try to work with clients um, a lot on. And then again, there's other considerations, whether someone's, um, you know, pregnant. So whether that's early pregnancy, late pregnancy, breastfeeding um, and then older age group as well. So kind of, you know, 50 plus. Um, you know, perimenopause, menopausal age, um, you know, by that time, our body, um, it, its ability to, to digest and utilize protein is, is reduced and with more muscle protein breakdown. So that's when um, higher intakes of protein are, are, are particularly important. Yeah, 100%. And also on the on the topic of protein, although we have like some quick hit like questions and answers, I suppose, after we get through all of this stuff that we can go through more specifically with this. But there is, um, again, if we go back to like evolutionary, there's reasons why traditionally women would have had protein aversion perhaps, but also lower protein intakes you know it's something that is you know culturally ingrained but there is like physiological reasons for it and there's also you know it is culture but it's more embedded culture like you think about hunter gatherer populations which look we all evolved from them well evolved we all descended from them i should say um like men were on the hunt although up until about you know 13 15 men and women would have hunted um but men were out in the hunt you know that was we get the protein that's what we do right so it's a really important job because as you said protein is important a lot of populations don't get enough protein so that was the that was the male role whereas the female role was to gather food so you see this in in terms of you know this is why 
again, evolutionary, this is what's posited anyway. Like, this is why women prefer snacking, because if you're out gathering, it's a lot easier to be like, oh, I've this, God got this, I can gather. It's also evolutionary why women have better eyesight than uh, men. Like, they can differentiate color. I think you have like four cones, whereas I've only got that virgin three cones. So, and this is also why you see so many guys that are uh, colorblind. Well, colorblind actually helps you with hunting, but that's another story. Um, but women are actually able to see like, oh, that apple is ripe. This is when I should pick it, you know, whereas I'm looking at that going, that's red, you know. So if you ever have an argument with your your other half and they're like, that's literally a white wall and you're like, no, it's magnolia or whatever <laughs> other color. Like you have to remember that guys literally cannot see colors that differentiated, you know, um, or or feel emotions. <laughs> there's actually a lot of research to support this as well it's very similar and it annoys shit on me because all the time my sister my girlfriend they'll be asking me how i feel and i'm like hungry uh good and they're like oh no like more descriptors and it's like if you actually look at the research like men are unable to identify with the same uh, range of emotional descriptors as women so that's me justifying my to- toxic masculinity yeah anyway, emotional emotion wheel where you're supposed to like here's the like exactly that's the one yeah, yeah. like guys have and that. gary that's another podcast that's another one <laughs> <laughs> guys have just that inner part of the wheel where it's like just basic like hunger yes good bad hungry <laughs> um, but anyway yeah so women have this more like um Sorry, what was I saying? Yeah, yeah. So they have this thing where it's like, okay, you traditionally have had the role of being the gatherer. So there is a potential mechanistic reason here, or at least evolutionary reason here, why you would potentially not have cared about protein as much. There's also other reasons for this evolutionary. And it's also why women uh, get this thing. Like uh, if you ever see like on, on TikTok or stuff, you'll see people talk about stuff like when uh, meat tastes too much like meat, you know? And they're like, oh, it, it's like, oh, it's, it, there's, it's too meaty, you know? But there's actually like, reasons for this because if you think about it it's also why women like get their like a stomach turned like they have a much greater like disgust sense you know and this is why again like guys are generally untidy where women are you know generally tidier and cleaner because you actually have again it goes back to the importance of you are the continuation of the human species right so like protein aversion is actually potentially beneficial because you know if you're eating something that's contaminated with salmonella or whatever like you could lose that pregnancy because of the food that you're eating so there's some potential there but also in terms of nitrogen uh, balance like if you're eating an excess amount of protein you could negatively affect the child you know so there is there's all these little like evolutionary things why it would make sense about why you experience the world and the food environment the way you experience it and they're interesting but again it's like how does this actually inform what we do again, you have to look at yourself as an experiment of one and you go, okay, well, how do I respond to these different things? You know, okay, they say I'm supposed to be getting this much protein or they're saying this, but what, how does that make me feel? Is there better protein sources for me? You know, for example, you know, a lot of women, again, they get that kind of, oh, it's tasting too like meat, you know, it's like oh, when meat tastes too much like meat, you know, and this can lead a lot of women to not eat stuff like uh, beef, you know, they're like, oh, I don't really like steak, or I don't really like, you know, beef or red meat or whatever. And all of a sudden, you're like, okay, well, you actually are a population that has iron deficiency, you know, and you need to have some source of iron in the diet. And of course, you know, especially in the modern day, we have supplements, we have different things that we can correct that with. But it's, something that we have to be aware of that, okay, well, we can actually just eat some red meat in the diet, you know, maybe twice a week or whatever it is and look after this issue. Now, again, there's other things that we can do, but it is interesting that we have these potential mechanisms as to why you don't do this, 
but that doesn't absolve you of having to get the same nutrients that guys need or whatever. Um, but anyway, that was a bit of a rant on protein. There are some other things that we'll, we'll talk about with protein because I, I do, we do have those kind of like quick hitters after we go through all this stuff. But if you want to talk about protein or Gary wants to talk about his emotions um, <laughs> or you want to move on, I'm happy. No, no. That, let, me, that... let me jump in. There'll be absolutely no talk about my emotions. But <laughs> what I will talk about is well, we actually have empirical validation of everything that you've just said and all of the research that basically suggests women are far more likely to be vegetarian, far more likely to be vegan. And there's one vegetarian in this podcast episode and it's not me and it's not you, Patty. So of course it is you, Nicola. So Nicola, what do you do yourself to give the listeners, I suppose, useful take-home points um, for all the female plant-based dieters out there and maybe males that might be listening? Who's on this? We are, like- actually, we are actually going to do plant-based for females later on. So you don't need to go in depth here. No, I was just going to say in terms of the protein side of things, because for example, you were talking about meat there and, and stuff like that. But as, as a vegetarian yourself, Nicola, like what are the, the, the big hitters, I suppose, for protein that you use in your diet to combat this issue? Yeah, so I suppose for me, it is things like tofu, tempeh, having like one kind of solid source of, of protein at each meal. Um, and then I suppose supplementing that with a few different types of beans, um, lentils, that kind of thing in, in meals as well, because it can kind of happen very easily in vegetarian diets. And I know when I became a vegetarian, I was like 11. Um, I didn't know anything about nutrition or protein. Um, and I was essentially just eating bread and like things. Um, and it's very easy then to even just have like um, a very, what, what you think is um, a protein source. So I know, and a lot of people who are vegan, vegetarian be like, yeah, no, I have like, you know, a handful of nuts or I'll have like a handful of seeds and it's actually so low in, in protein. Um, so I think having a couple of different sources at a meal will kind of really like add bulk. Um, but things like knowing how to cook tofu um, tempeh. Um, Sedan adding them into meals, I think, is 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 the biggest thing. So getting comfortable. If you if you become a vegetarian, vegan later in life, and you're not used to cooking these kind of things, it is a whole other skill set. Um, and learning what flavors go with each of them and what way you enjoy eating them. Um, so it does take a while, but yeah. And just on that, I'm just going to put it out there that I think tofu and tempeh literally taste like crap. However, you don't know how to cook them. You don't know how to cook them. Restaurant and get it. I'm like, this is this is not. <laughs> However, seitan now there is after like I've had like seitan chicken nuggets, um, absolutely delicious. Could not tell them apart from like chicken nuggets. Could like I would eat those happily. So you know there are options out there, even if you are someone that's like oh like tofu it's not you know it's not great it's not what i you know it's not enjoyable like there are still options that are actually tasty are actually enjoyable you know you're not just cursed to never eat the delicious beef again mm, that's it and it, it was funny that you were saying about um you know meat tasting too much like meat it reminded me when i was in america and i had an impossible burger and i i think i had like a, a mouthful of it and i was like it tastes too much like it i was like i can't have it <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Anyway, look, we'll anyway. move on to <laughs> fats now. Yeah, so fats i suppose is a big thing and and generally you'll you'll hear so many people being like do i need to be low fat um and just getting low fat variations of of absolutely everything and i suppose we forget about um the 
how essential fats are in our diet. So not only to, you know, absorb um, fat soluble vitamins, um, but also for, you know, production of our sex hormones. So our estrogen, progesterone, um, testosterone. So if we have um, really low fat in the diet, um, it can cause a disruption of those. So generally when we're setting up a diet, and I'd say you're probably the same as you're focusing on calories, you're focusing on protein, um, and then fats and carbs really come down to personal preference. So I suppose the only time that I'll kind of, I suppose, step in with that is if someone drops their fats too low. Um, so I suppose, what are, what are we aiming for when we're talking about fats in the diet? So um kind of unsaturated fats, uh, mostly unsaturated fats, polyunsaturated, kind of maybe about 20, 30% of calorie intake, keeping saturated fats under 10% of, of total calorie um, intake. Um, and then focusing on things, um, like I said, polyunsaturated fats and our omegas as well. And again, that's something that a lot of women can be lacking, not even just women, women and men um, are essential fatty acids, but particularly because there's a lot of women who are vegan, vegetarian. And one of the first things that they might chop out is fish. Um, so they're, they're very likely to be um, at risk of um, not even deficiency of them, but just kind of suboptimal health, I suppose, um, in those essential fatty acids. Yeah. And on the essential fatty acids, it's actually really interesting because, well, it's interesting on the protein as well, because again, women can get pregnant. So with a, a child, um, the two things, the two nutrients that are most important to a developing child, well, there are actually millions of nutrients that are really important, but for what most people actually care about in the world, which is intelligence, right? First of all, like DHA is so important to that developing child's brain. So you need to have some source of DHA in the diet. Generally in a, a normal population, this is going to be, uh, you know, fish. That's where most people are going to get it because it's the easiest access to DHA. But generally it's going to be some sort of marine derived DHA, well, EPA and DHA. EPA, we'll just think of it in more in terms of it's beneficial for cardiovascular health. That's generally how I think of it. I'm like EPA, EPA that's good for cardio stuff maybe some inflammation, whatever, DHA, that's good for the brain stuff. So that's obviously really important for the child, but also again, going back to the protein, like height is so correlated with protein intake, both during pregnancy and then also throughout childhood. And unfortunately, like a lot of children just don't get enough protein uh, because their parents also don't get enough protein. So again, because women have traditionally got this uh, role of raising the children, and then also they have this potential protein aversion or you know this you know dislike of protein, or potentially they are vegan or vegetarian themselves. They could be doing their children a disservice by not getting them enough protein in the diet, and also not getting them enough essential fatty acids in the diet. So this is something that's both important for you as an individual, if you're listening to this, whether you're a male or female, but also in terms of if you plan on reproducing, it's important for your children, because those are the two biggest determinants. If you want your child to grow tall, feed them enough protein, right? If you want your child to grow smart, feed them enough EPA and DHA, you know, ideally DHA. Um, so you have to look at that in the diet yourself, but also again, if you're planning on reproducing, you know, you need to look at it for the children, both during pregnancy and after pregnancy. There's also some other research as well, which is interesting enough where like uh, EPA or sorry, DHA pre preferentially is stored in the glutes uh, in women, which is really interesting. So if you're looking for massive glutes, get your DHA in. Um, 
but it's sold out everywhere now. <laughs> no stocks. But it's actually really interesting because there's actually a lot of research on the, I think it's called the depleted nutrient hypothesis in terms of, you know, the first child that you have, uh, they actually get better nutrition, um, better like, you know, um, what's the what's the term like during pregnancy anyway like they get better nutrition because you actually have built up all these stores of whatever vitamins whatever nutrients whereas if you have another child very close to that you actually have depleted some of these stores one of those stores being you know dha like women often say this they'll be like oh like my my bum is a lot flatter after my first pregnancy or even my like my boobs are a lot flatter like different things like that after their first pregnancy and they don't actually recover it back until they're not pregnant anymore. They're not like nursing a child anymore. And they're not like they're two years out. I think that was one of the papers that I saw. It was like, it took two years to get back to like nutrient sufficiency uh, for a lot of these different nutrients. So you could use that as a, like a family planning practice type thing where you're like, oh, I'm going to wait two years and I'm going to really focus on my like good nutrition in between pregnancies to make sure that I'm giving my second child or third child, fourth child, whatever it is, the the best nutrition possible. But again, we're not going to give you the advice to do that right here, but I want people to be aware that this stuff is important to think about. It's not just a case of, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just wing it. You know, you need to be thinking about this stuff ahead of time. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, and as well, I, I know we'll, we'll talk about vegan, vegetarian nutrition as well, but um, a thing that, that I commonly hear as well, when, when we're talking about omegas, I'm like, oh, well, like ALA can be converted into DHA and EPA, um, but the conversion generally isn't great um, and insufficient. So I suppose if you are vegan, vegetarian, kind of supplementing with some sort of algae oil um, is probably a, go- a good idea. 100% and like algo algo uh, algae oil is literally like it's plants plants of the sea basically so there's absolutely no reason that you shouldn't supplement there's no ethical there's no whatever well maybe there's ethical in terms of you're taking food away from other animals but you're doing that regardless of if you eat anything and um, but anyway let's move on to carbohydrates unless gary has anything to say no sir continue please yeah <laughs> Um, so yeah, carbs then I suppose is something that is still, you know, so demonized, whereas, you know, fats, I think they have had a little bit of a recovery. I think you still hear about everyone, um, cutting out carbs. So, and so I suppose carbs is, you know, is such a big umbrella term between like, you know, starches, um, fibers, um, kind of simple sugars, um, and they, they often kind of, you know, get, get confused, um, so I suppose while um, there's no kind of RDA for carbs, they're, I suppose, you know, non-essential. So, so long as we have, I suppose, enough fatty acids um, to, I suppose, convert into energy, I suppose, for our brain. Our brain uses up a lot of um, glucose every day. Um, but yeah, women particularly, I suppose, demonize carbs um, and particularly I suppose during the the second half of the menstrual cycle the luteal phase that's when we really kind of see intense cravings for carbs um you know we see it changes in our glucose metabolism here um you know I was saying earlier like glucose will generally like have um, a faster rate of gastric emptying during this time we'll have decreased um insulin sensitivity decreased GLP-1 um, which again helps with um insulin sensitivity um so I suppose the the main thing with women with carbs is I suppose trying to get them to restructure the way that they think of them. And instead of cutting out carbs, 
um, where you'll be cutting out like really helpful, um, you know, nutrients from vegetables, from from fruit, is to just think about, I suppose, focusing more on complex carbohydrates. Um, and I suppose, where do we go with thinking that we have, you know, um, decreased insulin sensitivity in the second half of the cycle? Do we make recommendations of that for women during during that phase? And to be honest, not really. Uh, I wouldn't personally, it's not something that I would prescribe or overemphasize. Um, but one thing I suppose that I that I would say when I when I see that um, someone is entering that phase is like, hey, do you know, why don't we focus like a little bit more on complex carbohydrates during the next week or two? Um, and again, that that's not being prescriptive about it. I think ask, telling someone maybe to focus more on co complex carbs, adding more vegetables into the diet is only going to be a net positive anyway. Um, so I suppose that's the way that that I would um, approach carbs um, and the menstrual cycle. 100%. I don't have anything to add. And as Gary does, let's move on to micronutrients. Now, obviously, look, this one, the next one is... Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's just so yeah. much. We're only going to give the, the quick hitters. There's a few, I think it's in two podcasts time, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, it might even be the next podcast. Next podcast, uh, yeah. Um, we're going to go in more in depth into nutrients, but there are some, oh, these are generally ones that we should focus on, but what are they? Yeah, so I suppose for, for women, we're thinking about iron. Um, so we're at higher risk of um, iron deficiency, and that's generally because we'll lose um, blood loss each month through menstruation. Um, so that is something that we want to be on the lookout for, symptoms of iron deficiency. Um, you know, should we take replacing it upon ourselves? No, but again, we'll talk about that in another podcast. Um, and then things like um, calcium, vitamin D, um, as we age, age um you know our bone mineral density decreases and that's why it's important to have sufficient levels of these things and again coming back to vegan vegetarian nutrition um, and even people who aren't vegan vegetarian i suppose that the rise of plant-based alternative milks even um is a huge contributing factor to maybe a lot of women not having sufficient levels of calcium um, and vitamin d and again that has negative implications for bone health in the long term um, and I think we saw a study that came out last year and it was comparing um, bone fractures in vegan population to non-vegan population. Um, and a vegan population was way more likely, I think it was like 50% more likely to, to have um, stress fractures. Um, and again, we know that um, a vegan vegetarian diet is in general can be very healthful. Um, but when we exclude certain nutrients um, from the diet, um, like calcium like are we replacing it and it's something that, that we need to look at so it's, that's particularly important for women in terms of aging and in terms of plant-based diets um and then what else so yeah um b12 is, is another thing that is is generally excluded with plant-based diets and again can be really debilitating deficiency again in terms of anemia in terms of you know peripheral neuropathy kind of numbness tingling in the hands and feet headaches um it's just yeah it's not something that you want to to be um deficient in doesn't sound like a good time all right no no so yeah there's some micronutrients as we said We'll discuss them in a future episode because look, most people in the general population also don't do great. You know, if you're on this standard American diet or standard Western diet, you know, 
there are a lot of nutrient deficiencies that could potentially uh, occur. So we need to look at that from a general population perspective. And then we also need to look at it from like, okay, you are a specific population within the general population. What matters for you? So we'll look at that in a future episode. Uh, nutrient timing, what you want to say on this? Because there are some things that we need to cover later in a future episode around like uh, amenorrhea and stuff. But what do you want to say from a, a base? Yeah. Exactly. So th- I suppose that this will I be kind of I suppose fleshed out in the Amenorrhea p- podcast. Um, so this is just talking about I suppose meal timings around workouts, um, and I suppose not leaving kind of huge long gaps in the day and without eating, t- touching on intermittent fasting and how that can cause um you know a deregulation kind of downstream of sex hormones as well um but so that's just i suppose like fueling before workouts after workouts and just not leaving yourself in a huge um energy um deficient state yeah and like you touched on it as well earlier in the podcast when you were talking about like intermittent fasting you'll see people propagate this as a oh this is a great tool for yeah certain people to manage their energy balance but it might not actually be a great tool for women specifically but again we'll, we'll touch on that in a future episode we just want to note it here um, and then finally supplementation what's the story here yeah so with, with supplements i'll always advocate i suppose a food first approach um and to make sure that supplements are you know supplemental to healthy eating habits um but again like intermittent fasting i like most of the research has been done in men um and there are important sex differences on how women um metabolize i suppose um drugs and supplements compared to men and so women will generally have a higher gastric ph um you know faster faster gastric um emptying times and there's a difference in liver um function and particularly one of the metabolizing proteins it's like cyp um three a fourth bit of mouthful um in in the liver and we generally have double the amount of it um which just means i suppose a faster clearance um of compounds from the liver um and so because of this you'll see that women are more are like one um to one it's like 1.5 i think more times more likely um to have adverse drug reactions compared to men as a result of this because if you have women in research um for these um supplements and you have all these fluctuations in hormones throughout the month um you get i suppose um compared to men who have i suppose a, a or the same throughout the month generally, um, you can have a huge skewed um, results towards the end. So it's just, they're just not as easy to study. But the bottom line then is that um, I suppose the research that you're reading about supplements might not be um, applicable to your female client population. Mm. Or it might be, okay, this is a supplement that could be beneficial, but the dosing, we don't have it dialed in for women because we just don't know. You could need more, you could need less. But again, it's just, it's not something that you can necessarily solve if you are a coach or you are a, an individual looking to do this yourself. And like that's for science to really hash that stuff out, but it is something to be aware of. And generally, this is why we advocate that kind of like food first approach. Like you want to get as much nutrition you can from food. Maybe you get some targeted supplementation, you know, based on your goals, like some general stuff, like a protein powder. It's not going to be, you know, the make or break of it. And um, like, that's kind of just an extra food really. 
yeah. running these like targeted nutrients or different, you know, uh, phytochemicals, phytonutrients, whatever it is, like you probably want to take a little bit of extra time and go, okay, well, is this studied in me as a population, like whatever exact population you find yourself in? And do I know what I should be taking? You know, maybe you need to go to a doctor, maybe you need to go to a nutritionist, a dietitian or whatever to really dial that stuff in. But having said that, you know, it's not like a lot of this stuff is going to be like this uh, crazy reaction and cause uh, undue harm to you. But it is something that we should still be aware of, you know. Um, but anyway, so that covers the, the kind of pyramid here of like, this is the, the basics of what we want to think of when we're talking about nutrition. There's some obviously, you know, specific female stuff that we've talked about within that. Um, but I want to do this kind of like just quick hitter to kind of round out the podcast here, because there's a few things that are more, we'll call them like specific for women. We covered a, a good few of them. We're just going to, you know, quickly run through them there. You know, there's a lot of like specific things, you know, we could literally spend the next 20 episodes just talking about nutrition and still not cover it all um but nutrition for women so we talked about protein intake um are the actual protein intake requirements different between men and women or is this kind of just a an artifact of differences in lean body mass because like you were saying earlier on we have this you know 0.8 grams per kilogram that's the, the generally touted like this below this is a deficiency level you're not going to get enough protein you're not going to supply enough amino acids for the body blah 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 um, and especially if you're not getting like protein intake in general is actually just a proxy for amino acid intake you know so you want to get the, the full spectrum of amino acids you don't want any of those amino acids to be limiting there are certain essential amino acids there's certain like you know, branch chain amino acids there's different types of amino acids within that but generally we want this kind of fuller spectrum of amino acids and certain diets you know unless we're doing some sort of like food combining like if you're a vegan or a vegetarian plant-based in general like you have to think about that a little bit more to make sure you do get that full spectrum. Um, but disregarding that for a second, in terms of our actual requirements, like are there differences between men and women or is this just an artifact of you know lean body mass? Because in general, I think it is literally just lean body mass. There are some caveats to that, but what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I suppose it would, it would depend as to what the, um, like what why if you're looking at it in terms of trying to prevent like a deficiency or if you're trying to look at it in terms of like muscle gain and yeah I suppose I would be thinking more be more off lean body mass and so women the average woman will have about I suppose 30 percent of her body mass will be um, muscle um, whereas it'll be about 40 percent in men Um, and then on the other side of that kind of the proportion of I suppose fat on our bodies is that women in terms of essential fats that'll be you know fat around kind of the nerve tissue women will also have it in the reproductive organs breasts um we'll have about nine percent essential fat compared to men who have about three so if you were to compare that um to a man and a woman who are both at a 15% body fat percentage, women will have about 6% of that that will be non-essential, um, whereas men will have um, 13 or have 12. <laughs> I can't do maths. I'm sorry. Um, so it, it, there's a huge difference there. And I was like essential and non-essential fat um, and, and lean mass. So I would say that, yeah, it, that it will be based off that. Yeah, and this actually does have implications for when we're actually either us as coaches, like 
dictating, okay, this is roughly where I think protein intake should be, but also as individuals trying to figure out where your protein intake should be. Like if you just base it purely off, I step on the scales and, oh, it says I'm 80 kilos. If you just base it completely off that, you know, we might not actually have a very accurate figure, you know? So we need to take into account body fatness. Um, but that's also very hard to do, you know? So we generally, you know, we try to take that into account, but what we do is we just have a range of, you know, whatever it is, depending on what we think the individual needs, we'll probably be somewhere in that range of 1.5, maybe a little bit lower, depending 1.5 to 2.5 grams per kilo for like where you want absolute optimal. We generally are training athletic populations, well, not athletic populations, but people who are exercising, people who are looking to gain muscle, change their body composition. We're generally in that range. Now, sometimes we're lower. Again, it depends on the individual. Sometimes we're even higher. But generally, somewhere in that 1.5 to 2.5, I find is a good starting place. And then we might modify that further based on you look at the individual and you're like, okay, you actually don't have a huge amount of muscle mass in general. And lean mass does encompass other things than just muscle mass. But muscle mass is the actual thing that we can change the most. So that's that's why we're looking at it, you know. And you might have the individual that you know has a lot more body fat. So you have an individual that is 80 kilos and they're very lean. You might have the individual that's 80 kilos and have a very low amount of muscle mass. And this has implications for how we actually set our protein intake, but also it has implications in terms of like the calories that those individuals are going to be on, you know? And this is important to understand because, you know, again, with social media, you'll see someone online and they'll be like, oh, I'm 70 kilos and I'm eating 3,400 calories a day. And you're, you might be 70 kilos and you're like, oh, how, how is this person able to you know diet on that or how are they losing fat how are they able to stay that body composition and you look at if you were actually to compare yourself you're like this individual is just very heavily muscled compared to you so there's a difference there in terms of their energy expenditure and then there's all these other things like obviously you know a lot of people compare themselves to like fitness influencers who you know they're able to get their 10,000 steps in every single day, regardless. They're training maybe twice a day. They're they're doing activities, they're whatever. There's a lot more you know, energy expenditure in their lives versus you, the same weight individual, but you work at a desk and, you know, you don't have as much muscle mass. So we have to take all that stuff into account. Um, so do you have anything to say on that? Um, no, not, not really. I suppose for, for women, like it, it's seeing where the, where their starting point is as well. So, you know, like we were saying, like a lot of women that will come to me will have generally low, quite low intakes. So, um, what I would do instead of kind of having their ideal, um, protein intake, you know, for, you know, muscle gain or for satiety, like whatever it is, is just trying to improve a little bit on, on where they are now and just kind of having that as, as as the point and trying to improve on that um as yeah. weeks go on yeah like you generally again just for coaches in general you want to at least get them above that 0.8 that's at least the first target you're like okay regardless of if this is optimal or regardless of if this is like the perfect for the goals that they have we're like okay we want to at least get over that 0.8 and generally if you can get them up to that one gram per kilo like you're in a good place you're in a good place to really start thinking about okay now, how do we feel about this? Um, are you actually enjoying the foods that you're eating? Do you know how to prepare these foods? Do you feel more satiated? Do you feel your recovery is better? Like we can start really dialing that stuff in from there. But if you're in this kind of deficient state where you're eating like whatever, 0.5 grams per kilo, like you're literally getting whatever, 40 grams of protein per day, like of course you're going to be hungrier. Of course your recovery is not going to be optimal. So we have to look at that and go, okay, well, the first intervention 
is to get them up to a sufficient state or rather a non-deficient state, you know? Um, also on this, and we kind of touched it on it earlier on, like a lot of women will have like protein aversions, but also specific protein aversions um, in terms of like red meat intake. You know, women rightly or wrongly do tend to eat less red meat, right? Um, and this again, unfortunately, that's generally where people get iron in their diet. They get it from their red meat intake. Um, so if you're not eating red meat, we have to come up with some sort of solution. Now we will actually cover iron intake in the next episode, but in a general sense, you know, we, we need to be thinking of the diet and going, okay, there's some basic nutrients. Okay. There's some nutrients that women have to focus on a bit more. Where in my diet am I getting that nutrient? You know, like you don't have to do complex testing. You don't have to do anything like that. You just need to look at your diet and go, am I like, is there anything in this that has this food? And there's different apps and stuff that you can use like chronometer or chronometer, however you say it. Um, that one is quite good. It'll give you a breakdown of, oh, these are the nutrients you're getting. Like you just pop in an, an individual day's diet or, you know, it's good to do it over a week to see like some days you might have higher intake, lower, whatever. And um, But you do that and you go, okay, I can clearly see here that these nutrients I'm not getting a huge amount of. And maybe you might also take like a multivitamin as well. So, you know, that might be something that bumps your intake up, but we still have to look at that stuff. And even if you do all of that stuff right, you still might not be in the optimal intake. You might also be in a... a a negative place like you might have like a undiagnosed hemochromatosis or something you might be like oh i've really got my my uh, iron intake really dialed in but you're a whatever a 28 year old and all of a sudden you're like well oh, actually you know i'm starting to notice i'm building up some fatigue you go to get your blood test done and you're like jesus <laughs> my iron is like through the roof and you're looking at your diet going like how is this the case you know but anyway we'll, we'll touch that in the next episode i just wanted to note it here that especially in relation to protein, like you need to not just look at the, the number, we need to look at the actual sources of that. If we're a plant-based dieter, we need to go, okay, are we actually you know trying to build out a more complete uh, amino acid profile? And um, if we're not eating red meat, like where are we getting iron from? If we're not eating fish or something, now where are we getting these omega-3s from? We just need to look at the actual sources of protein in our diet and then try to come up with some sort of solution for any of the problems that come up. Now, again, it's hard to do this as an individual because you're always going to be limited by your knowledge. You know, you're not going to know, Oh, well, am I missing this nutrient or what about this? Like, you're not going to have that full picture, but this is where stuff like hopefully this podcast can help as a reference, but also you know, working with someone, you know, like it's so easy. Well, I say it's easy. It, it, you know, you have to pay for it, et cetera, but like to get a coach for three to six months, really dial all this stuff in, and then have a skill for the rest of your life. You know, now obviously I would say that we sell coaching, but you know, even if you don't go with us, which you should, um, even if you don't go with us, like it's a really beneficial thing to do to really dial this stuff in because you have to think about it, like, where did you get your nutritional knowledge? You know, probably got it from your parents, the culture around you, maybe then from social media, maybe then from some articles and stuff that you, you read. Maybe it's just from magazines or whatever it is. It doesn't mean that it's a really complete picture of nutrition. So we have to actually learn to do this stuff correctly later in life it's not taught in schools should be in my opinion um, but unfortunately it's not um, and again further to the protein stuff like if you're cutting out dairy like we said earlier on calcium where are we getting it? so there's a few different things to be aware of so do you have anything to say just quick hitters on protein intake and um, yourself or gary I'll, I'll throw this one over to gary we'll see see what he used to say for himself I'll just be like, oh, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a minimalist. You know, I, I speak when I need to speak um, like a disciplined child. 
But no, I, look, I think that's that covers the vast majority of what's required for protein intake. You know, I think it's I think it's pretty simple. I think the vast majority of the caveats that we've added in terms of hypotheticals as to why protein intake might need to be different between the sexes are very much speculative. You know, I think the evolutionary arguments as to why there might be differences in preferences are, you know, interesting and worth exploring, but it really comes down to the basics. The protein recommendations that we give to men are pretty much the exact same as those we give to women. That's great news for us as coaches. It means we don't need to overthink it, but most importantly, I think for the end user of the information, it's again an affirmation of the point that we made previously that if you're you know, consuming nutrition information, it's, it's a fair enough baseline assumption that what applies to men also applies to women. You know, Obviously, like I think this area is rife with misinformation at the moment because it's such an easy sell to say, here's the specific protocol for women, here's why it's different for women. Because obviously we kind of live in a, a cultural moment as well where people are you know, trying to move forward in terms of getting rid of traditional gender roles and et cetera, et cetera, all progress. But there's always going to be people that pry on that. And one of those things here is it's very easy to make money off women. If triage were to come out with, here's all of the specific supplements that women need. You know, it, you see that all the time, women's supplement lines. And then you look at the ingredients and you're like, hold on, why is this female way? Why is it women's way? It's pink. That's the only difference, you know? And it's, it's, it's quite ironic because it's supposed to be like this kind of a feminist movement when in fact you're just charging more for the same price and just reinforcing it with, with the color pink. So my overall message is that for protein, for all of the macronutrients, for the most part, you can assume similar recommendations with a few minor caveats but mostly you'll be fine, I think. 100%. Um, and then just kind of moving on from this, but also related, um, does nutrition need to change across the cycle? And the thing about this is like, yeah, it kind of does, but also it kind of doesn't. You know, we basically want to create a diet that you can see yourself doing for a longer period of time. You know, it might not be something where you're like, oh, I'm going to eat in a deficit for the rest of my life. But we want to set up good nutrition habits. So that's why we started with the, the first thing here in this episode being like, these are just the general good diet patterns, the same good diet, like guidelines and whatever. And um, once you've got that stuff dialed in, yeah, you might make some individual tweaks based on what you're experiencing, but that's based on you as an individual. We're not generally anyway, uh, we don't prescribe to that kind of like periodizing your nutrition to your period. Like it, it, it sounds good in practice. Sounds great for marketing. You can be like, Oh, like, you know, you need to eat this here and you know, you need to increase calories and do whatever. But ultimately you need to look at that as an individual experiment. Yes. All the stuff that we've talked about in this episode and all the stuff that we will talk about in, in future episodes, it will go into informing what you need to do and how you navigate that stuff. But ultimately, you need to start with the baseline, get this kind of good general diet pattern sorted out, and then we can start really dialing it in based on, okay, you notice in week four, you have really bad cravings. You notice that, you know, your body temperature is higher. You notice that, you know, different things, you, you notice these different things. You're like, okay, how can I actually overcome that? Perhaps then you add in a few extra calories there, maybe hundred, 200, whatever it is, you play around with that and you go, okay, now I'm actually starting to see 
a much better result. I feel better. I feel like everything is really dialed in for me, but you need to do that as an individual. Unfortunately, we can give you information that informs your practices, but we can't give you the, here is the, here is the protocol. Here is the triage method female protocol like we can't give that unfortunately it would be great for us it would be such an easy money spinner you know it's like oh i just market this set some ads up on uh, google set some ads up on instagram and facebook and whatever else and sell loads of it but it doesn't actually it's, it's not scientific it sounds scientific but it's actually not it's not helpful uh, we need to think of this as an individual endeavor and obviously someone like a coach a competent coach will be able to help you navigate that but you still need to use your individual data to manipulate this stuff so while we could get into oh you need to increase your carbs at this stage or decrease your fats or increase your fats and all that kind of stuff it's not like it's not all that helpful it might be helpful in certain uh, populations like you might be an athlete and you're really at the absolute pinnacle of like human performance and you need to maximize your training you need to maximize your nutrition to support that like yeah we're going to look into like very specific protocols but even at that we're going to use you as the individual we're going to use you as oh how do you respond oh we tried a little bit of higher fat based on this you know mechanism or this theory it didn't work for you. It didn't help your sport. It actually decreased your recovery, whatever it is. So we need to do that on an individual basis, regardless of what the, the science says. So like we said in the, in the first episode, and we touched on it here again, it's more of this auto-regulation approach. It's more of this, I'm going to listen to my body. I'm going to change things based on the feedback that my body is giving me. And I'm going to craft a plan of action with that in mind. I'm not just going to follow this generic Week one, we do this. Week two, we do this. Week three, we do this. You follow your body, you follow the signals, but to do that, you need to learn to listen to those. Amen. You have anything, <laughs> Gary, on that? What? You have anything to say, Gary? <laughs> Nicholas said amen, and I was like, oh, will I say Aria? Aria? No, don't, Gary, don't. That's not funny. I didn't want to commit blasphemy as well on a Sunday and ruin the word amen. But no, other than that, I have nothing else uh, to add there. I think that reiterates my point and it's pretty clear. Fantastic. Nicola, is fat loss harder for women? Um, I would say yes, definitely. Um, like you're saying, just to do with the hormonal fluctuations. Um, and again, I suppose, graining back to uh, cultural differences as well. And I think there's a lot more um, disordered eating um, in women, um, a lot more societal pressure, I would say. Um, and I think that 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 all contributes to it just being a, a more difficult experience, as we were saying as well, um, in terms of female physiology, um, will more kind of aggressively defend against um, losing losing fat. Um, so that, again, that's not to say that it's, that it's like wildly more difficult. It's just maybe a little bit more difficult. And there's just a few more things maybe that you have to look out for like energy availability that we were talking about. But again, this, this is something that doesn't necessarily need to be overemphasized. It's not kind of, kind of be the biggest thing, um, in, in weight loss. It might not be a huge barrier, um, it's just one thing to consider, but again, not to overemphasize it either. Yeah, like I would, I would think putting a number on it, it would be about 15 to 30% harder. 
for for women to uh, lose fat and that's not necessarily from a uh, physiological perspective like obviously a lot of this goes back to physiology you know but even just from an actual living in the world perspective you know if you're on a a calorie deficit and you're a smaller individual because women are generally smaller than guys if you're on a deficit and you know your calories are at whatever let's just say 1500 that's what the deficit you have to be on to to lose meaningful fat week to week right and like me on a 500 calorie deficit like i'm still eating whatever 2500 calories so just by virtue of being a bigger individual it's kind of easier to still live in the real world you know like i can go out for food and go oh yeah i still have to manipulate my diet a little bit more but if you're eating 1500 calories and you go out for food that could be a thousand calories gone you know and if you're going out like most people for dinner or something like you've probably already eaten your normal meal so it's not like you have this huge opportunity to manipulate the diet you know and so from a real world perspective it's just a lot harder for women and then you've also got this like adaptive metabolism going on where it's like okay you've been dieting for a week now oh i'm actually just gonna uh, knock down your calorie expenditure through like decreases in meat decreases in you know uh, your actual like body temperature different things like that that go up to actually making your 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 basal uh, metabolic rate so you've got that going against you as well. So it's kind of a ticking time bomb being like, we can't diet you for too long because you're just going to adapt to this more and more. Again, generally, not everyone that occurs to or occurs with. So it is, in my opinion, at least a lot harder, practically speaking, for women to lose fat. So we have to take that into account. We have to, first of all, manage expectations when you have a client in front of you, but also as individuals, we need to look at that and go, okay, this probably means that if I want to lose five kilos of you know, body fat, I'm going to be doing this over five months, you know, rather than a guy might be able to do that over five weeks, you know? And so you have to look at that on a longer term horizon, but unfortunately you also have to account for periods of time eating at maintenance so that you're not just dieting for five months and coming out the back end of that and going i feel like crap i'm going to gain those five kilos back in a fucking month you know so we don't want that to occur because first of all it's unhelpful because it goes against our goals but also rapid swings in body weight are generally not great for you know the cardiovascular system and you know stuff like that so we don't want that either and obviously mentally and psychologically like it's not great to be like i just worked really hard for five months and then destroyed all of that hard work in a month you know um gary what are your thoughts is fat loss harder for women i would say yes i think that one of the i think one of the big things that often isn't isn't considered here is not just how hard it is at a given point in time but how hard it is over time because like when you think about fat loss you know people most people aren't going to be that obese yet in their teens as they head into, head into their 20s, they go off to college, maybe they start to gain a few pounds, they leave college, they get a job, and now they're in a position where they got a bit more money, they're eating out more. The weight is starting to kind of creep up. Suddenly you're 25, 26, 27, you're thinking, the biological clock is ticking, maybe it's time to start considering having children, okay? And if you consider that 25 to 35 window of having kids, you know, some people have them later, but generally within that period of time, a woman might start thinking about having kids and family planning, etc. That's now a difficult period of time for a woman to start thinking about aggressive fat loss as well. You know, because let's say you want to have four kids 
and we're going with Paddy's family planning strategy of keeping it to every two years to restore gluteal DHA as previously discussed. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you're, if you're going with that approach, let's say we have a, an eight to 10 year period, having a kid every two years, you're getting back to your baseline state of health. You're dealing with the stress of early motherhood. Your husband goes back to work. It's a very difficult period of time to start to engage in a, a, a fat loss phase where you're going to be getting to the gym, getting your steps in, prepping your meals. You know, you've got enough going on. So when you think about that, um, you can see how that that kind of period of 25 to 35 or 25 to 40 might be more or less written off for some women as a time period to lose weight. And then suddenly, as you move into your 40s and 50s, now you've got other barriers like menopause approaching, you know, um, other challenges like the financial strain of your kids going off to college that might be affecting your family. There's so many things that go on um, over time that might make the process more difficult. That's absolutely not to say that men don't have, you know, challenges that might be equivalent in some cases, you know, for example, some, some men in, in certain cultures, for example, might be expected to uh, bring home all the money and support the far family regardless. They might be working 80, 100 hours a week. Not easy in that case either to be losing fat unless you're just, you know, working all the time so you can't eat. That might be a nice little diet hack that we don't necessarily recommend. Um, but yes, for the most part, I would say it's probably harder um, for women to lose weight. I think that the, at a given point in time, it's probably a bit more difficult, but particularly over time when you consider some of the um, physiological changes, I think it, it certainly can be very challenging. 100%. But possible. Yeah, this is the thing. Look, it is still possible. But again, we just have to be realistic. We have to set things up in a more accurate way we can't just be like oh i'm just gonna go 500 calorie deficit and uh, that's the that's the job done you know we need to think about this a little bit more now we're gonna wrap this episode up because you know it's been going on quite a long time but before we do i just want to touch on final two things and let nicola touch on them and this is literally just quick hitter because we are actually going to cover both of these things in their own individual episodes but i just want to make people aware that this is also something that we need to think about right so do you want to take it away there nicola finish up on those last two things that are on the on the list lovely <laughs> so the yeah the last two things and um, the first one being um low energy availability and amenorrhea like i said we're going to cover this i suppose extensively in another podcast um but i suppose it can be characterized by um physical stress um psychological stress um, and I suppose it's generally associated with um, a lower um, body fat, but not always. So I suppose that's a big misconception with it. Um, and what happens is that generally your ovaries are fine. And then it's an issue kind of higher up in the chain, um, you know, between your hypothalamus, your pituitary um, and your, the production of your sex hormones are essentially cut off. Um, and it's your body signaling that now is not a good time to get pregnant. Um, so estrogen and progesterone are low. There's metabolic disruption. Um, there's there because there's low estrogen progesterone particularly estrogen has a protective effect on bone mineral density so there's a decrease there that can manifest itself as stress fractures low energy mood swings um, nagging injuries um, reduced ability to recover from sessions 
Um, so with that, it's looking, you know, it's it's multi multifactorial. It's looking at energy availability around training. It's looking at, um, you know, energy availability in general. If you're in a chronic energy deficit um, the exercise intensity um, and then just like like psychological stress as well is a huge um, contributor. But again, we'll go into all that in, in, in more detail. Yeah, because there's a lot to cover here. So we'll, there's an episode on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then does nutrition change with menopause? And again, this is such a big thing and it deserves its own nearly couple of, of, of episodes. Um, you know, we spend about a third of our lives in that, you know, menopause, perimenopausal state. And really, I suppose what we're know, what we're finding more out about now, that it's important to make nutritional interventions in the perimenopause that will carry over and benefit when you become, I suppose, a postmenopausal woman. Um, like I said, it's its own episode, but this is um, focusing on things like bone mineral density, you know, adequate um, calcium, vitamin D, magnesium, phosphorus, et cetera, in the diet. Um, also during also for postmenopausal women, there's decreased insulin sensitivity that has implication for, you know, how, how much carbs you're eating, blood glucose levels, um, type two diabetes risk, cardiovascular disease risk. Um, and then tying in with bone mineral density and the risk of sarcopenia, which is age-related muscle um, decline in older adults. Um, so there's increased, um, you know, uh, muscle breakdown, um, protein breakdown. Um, so that's why you need to prioritize protein in that older age group. And then finally, we can kind of get into kind of the minutiae with things like, you know, prioritizing things like cruciferous vegetables to try and, um, I suppose, get rid of um, estrogen metabolites from the body, especially women who are experiencing vasomotor symptoms like hot flushes, um, increased body temperature that is I suppose, driven by an excess of estrogen metabolites in the body. But again, that's, that's more minutiae that we can um, flesh out, I suppose, in, in further episodes. 100%. Right. So I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Um, again, we didn't expect this podcast series to be like, here's one episode and it's going to answer all of your questions on this particular topic because all of this stuff is interrelated and you kind of really need to build up your knowledge over time before you can really go, okay, I actually understand you know, this part of it, this part of it that's relevant to me. And also we want to have this serve as somewhat of a reference so that you can go back to it and go, oh yeah, actually this makes sense. Oh, I have to deal with this. That's something I wasn't thinking about. Or again, if you're a coach, you need to be able to go back to this and go, oh, that's actually something I haven't been doing with my clients. Maybe I can help in whatever capacity, right? Um, but anyway, Gary, can you wrap us up? Can you tell people where to find us? Can you tell people about Nicola's fantastic coaching and whatever else we have going on? Absolutely. So as always, guys, we do have coaching spaces available. Um, we did actually just bring on a new coach as well. So sorry to take away Nicola's spotlight for a moment, but we brought on a new pain and rehab coach, Mr. Luke Murray. So Luke has a lot of experience as a physiotherapist. He's worked at Arsenal, London Irish, in the NHS, and he ditched all that for triage, dead right. No, really, he's a medical student as well. Like myself, he's gone back to study medicine. So he's going to work for triage as a coach in the meantime. So if you'd like to work with um, triage in your in your pursuit of getting rid of pain and injury, dealing with pain and injury while pursuing, obviously, the rest of your health and fitness goals, 
we do now have a lot more spaces open for that. That's an area of our coaching that has been in high demand. I haven't been able to take on many more pain and rehab clients, but Luke will now be opening up those spaces. So if you're interested, do get in touch. Of course, the rest of our coaches also have spaces available. In particular, Nicola deals with most of our women's health focused clients. So maybe having issues with some of the things we've discussed in this episode. Some women that come to work with us just prefer having a female coach that they can relate to, which is completely understandable. So Nicola has spaces available and the rest of us also have spaces available too. So if you'd like to work with us, the information is in the description box below. If you need a little bit more, you know, nourishment prior to engaging the coaching process, we have a ton of free content available on our social media. Okay, so make sure you're following Triage on Instagram, you're following all of our individual pages. You can also subscribe to our podcast that you're listening to. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel and you can also follow us on TikTok. Okay, I'm going to be putting out some content on the Triage TikTok and my own Skinny Guys TikTok. So far on Triage, uh, Nicola's TikTok is most popular. So we're going to put more women's health stuff out. <laughs> so yeah, look, TikTok is a, it's a growing platform. The engagement on Instagram is absolutely terrible these days, to be honest. And TikTok seems to be a bit more um, kind to us. So we'll see how that goes, but make sure you're following. There'll be a lot of content there. People seem to like when we put out videos. Paddy's been up putting out some excellent videos on his Instagram as well in Reels. So there's just so much that you could be consuming for absolutely free if you're following us. You can also subscribe to the Triage Method email list. Again, more free content straight to your inbox. So whether you want emails, you want videos, you want written content, you want podcast content, we've got it all. Make sure you're following, okay? Other than that, I think that's everything. Anything I forgot? No, that's everything. Um, so hope everyone enjoyed this episode. And uh, if you're not following the podcast, you have fucked up. Um, so follow it in whatever app that you're listening to this stuff. If you're watching it on YouTube or you're, I don't know, listening in your car, pull over right now. <clears throat> give us a like, follow. If you're able to give a rating and review, do that. Five stars only, please. Um, but other than that, um, I hope you all enjoyed this episode and we will see you in the next one.